New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Are spiritual practices a necessity or merely a luxury in these turbulent times? How do prayer, meditation, mindfulness, and other practices help us in crazy times? What are some practices that will stabilize and anchor us when the winds of rancor and rage are swirling? Our guest today urges us to look into our spiritual pantry to find ingredients most useful, ones that fit our personal needs, predilections, and circumstances. And he urges us to establish an effective spiritual routine. Today, we'll be exploring how we can stay safe, stable, and spiritually sane in a stormy world with our guest, Philip Goldberg. Philip Goldberg has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 50 years. He's a workshop leader, spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister, and co-hosts Spirit Matters podcast. He leads American Veda tours and blogs regularly on Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health. He's the author of many books, including American Veda, From Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. Also, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru, and spiritual practice for crazy times, powerful tools to cultivate calm, clarity, and courage. Join us for the next hour as we explore creating a spiritual routine that suits our needs in these crazy times with our guest, Philip Goldberg. I'm speaking with Philip at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Phil, welcome. Great to be with you, Justine. Great. It's great to have you. Um, I know that in the 1960s, which was another turbulent time, there was protesting of the Vietnam War, and you were involved in some of that. And so with that, um, you found yourself in a gallery of Buddhist statues in the Boston Museum. Can you describe that moment for us? Yeah, um, well, the backstory is briefly, I was, you know, very politically active in the 60s, 
civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and I had no interest in religion or spirituality. But like many of uh, my generation, I, you know, I was just seeking and trying to figure out life and uh, how to be happy and what it was all about and everything else. And um, during that period, I moved to Boston, and not long after I was there, someone recommended that I go to the Museum of Fine Arts to what is called still, I think, the Temple Room. And it's this beautiful little room, a gallery with a Buddhist statuary. And I found myself alone in it. Uh, and I just was transfixed as I went from statue to statue. And there was, there was just something in the faces of these stone Buddhas and bodhisattvas that just uh, was unfathomable. I'd never seen anything like that before. And in the expression... I had this thought come to me that said, whatever those guys had, I want it. Because, you know, they radiate peace, equanimity, wisdom, and love. And I said, I, you know, I don't know how you get that, but I want it if it's real. <laughs> and, you know, at the time, books about it, Eastern spirituality were already circulating, so I had some awareness of what was going on. But that led to, you know, an even uh, more intense search. And before long, you know, my my little apartment was filled with books that had nothing to do with the courses I was ostensibly studying. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are those who would say that spiritual practitioners are apathetic escapists, and and there's a, a term um, called spiritual bypassing, which is um, considered a form of avoidance. Um, can you can you say something about um, those that would say that to be practicing spirituality is an escape? Yes, and um, it's something that has occupied my attention ever since those days in the late 60s, and something I was guilty of myself, because I went from political activist to spiritual practitioner to spiritual activist. I became a teacher, one of the early teachers of transcendental meditation in that era after the Beatles uh, put uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Rishikesh and TM on the map. And um, I thought that was how we would change the world. You know, I used to say I was changing the world one mantra at a time. And I disengaged, I got detached from the political uproar and, you know, social uh, justice and everything else thinking that was not the, the way things are going to change, that things had to change from the inside out, and it would all unfold automatically. And my personal life as well, which is, you know, the spiritual bypass was first coined to, to, to describe people who were not paying attention to the, the personal or interpersonal dimensions of life, to 
to their behavior, to their psyches, uh, thinking all would be healed and all would be well uh, through spiritual practice alone, what one uh, person called the cushion model of, you know, growth. Um, and that turned out to be, you know, something of an illusion that uh, spiritual practice does transform us and it transforms us in, in radical and important ways as it did to me. My life utterly changed when I took up spiritual practices back in the 60s. So it was easy to conclude that if I just keep meditating and just keep doing my yoga and my pranayama and everything else, you know, life would be bliss and I wouldn't have to pay attention to, you know, my personality and my quirks and my old wounds and uh, things that annoyed other people <laughs> and, th and all that. And social, uh, you know, uh, the, so the social situations and conditions. But that also turned out to be a rather naive. And um, uh, here we are in uh, <laughs> troubled times. What was a circumstance that would help you to understand a broader way of how spiritual practice, I think you use the word um, uh, political activism and spiritual activism, uh, yeah. and, and where activism kind of came forward that you felt like, okay, wait, I need to do more than just my yeah. own sitting uh, and gazing at my navel, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the truth is there is an escapist, um, detached, otherworldly element in the world spiritual tradition. There are monks and recluses and renunciates, and that's an honorable thing. But somewhere along the way, what works for renunciates and, you know, people, you know, living in caves in the Himalayas or in isolated ashrams or monasteries uh, somehow got applied to the, the vast majority of us who are seekers of spiritual wisdom and spiritual growth and illumination, but are also living in the world. And we took on a detachment ethos when it really shouldn't apply to us. So in my case, I, I realized when my you know flaws and foibles didn't just disappear automatically you know, with more meditation, that I needed to attend to that. And in recent years, I think I and a great many other people who wanted to change the world and hoped it would unfold as individuals unfolded their spiritual uh, dimension, experience showed us it, it, it wasn't happening, especially in the last few years. And so it, it becomes obvious that uh, spiritual practitioners are needed to also rise to the occasion and be uh, good citizens and active citizens. Because, you know, we're part of it all. I'm thinking of an example of someone who was um, a monk and 
and lived rather reclusively, although he was teaching within the monastery, is Thomas Merton. Yes. And he was very, very politically active. Yes, he was. And he's a great example. And the truth is, you know, I lead tours to India. I go to India a lot. I meet gurus and swamis and yoga masters. And almost all of them, have their followers doing some kind of service, some kind of active participation to help the pollution problem in India or to help the poor people who are suffering in India or to open hospitals or, you know, it, it, they are detached, but also aware of what's going on in the world and moved to do something about it. And and this is, you know, these are terribly important lessons. Merton is a good one. And it, the truth is that, you know, in, if you go to monasteries, they're removed from the world. It, it, as they say, as we say in the West, they're in the world, but not of it. But the in the world part, some, it also moves them to do something. They help the poor. They uh, help start industries in you know impoverished areas they bring, they have food kitchens whatever it is they do they make a contribution this vast uh, world exactly yeah we're going to continue with this thought about spiritual activism with our guests i just want to remind our listeners i'm here with Philip Goldberg, and he's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools to Cultivate Calm, Clarity, and Courage. And his website is philipgoldberg.com. And he spells Philip with one L, philipgoldberg.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Philip Goldberg, and he's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools to Cultivate Calm, Clarity, and Courage. And Phil, we're, we're talking about spiritual activism, and, um, you know, another recent person that we might look to as part of being uh, spiritually motivated and yet active in the world was the late Congressional Representative um, John Lewis. Yeah. And I think he's such a great example of 
of loving compassion and fierce activism. Absolutely right. And it, you know, he's another great reminder, as is the example of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, and of course, Gandhi. I think the advent of, you know, the fundamentalist uh, right wing has made people on the left, people who are progressives and so forth, um, antagonistic toward the, any link between what they think of as religion and uh, politics or social movements, forgetting that Gandhi was a deeply spiritual man and meditated every morning and read the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. And, you know, Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and all those guys were ministers. And so was John Lewis. John Lewis was ordained. You know, these are people whose, whose spirituality moved them you know, to exhibit incredible courage and uh, fierce uh, activism. So, you know, there's, there's good precedent for that, good examples of it. You know, you mentioned in introducing me, I wrote a biography of uh, Yogananda, you know, who most of your listeners would know as the author of, uh, you know, the iconic autobiography of a yogi. And when you look into his life, his personal life as a human being, you see, you know, a great example of somebody in the world, but not of it. He was a monk. You know, he took Swami vows, uh, but he was as busy and as uh, committed as any CEO or entrepreneur. He worked very, very hard. He had to deal with all, all the issues of, of the world. And as he was teaching people to put their spiritual lives first and foremost, he at the same time spoke out in his era against injustices, against racism, against religious bigotry, against the greed that had, you know, was causing all the issues of the Great Depression and, you know, and, and then against, you know, war and all, you know, he spoke up and at considerable risk because he could have been deported at any, any time. Uh, and he spoke out in, in behalf of Gandhi and the Indian independence movement at great risk. So there are examples of this. And to think that we are, you know, that self-protection and keeping us, our spirits and our minds and our bodies from, you know, getting overwhelmed by the world uh, has to go as far as to ignore what's going on. There's something that you mentioned in the book, and it's, it's also in the writings of um, Gandhi, that when things were really heated up in the political realm in India— he, he said, oh, today, it was some day that something was happening. He said, today, things are, are tough. I'm paraphrasing, are really tough. So I need to meditate for two hours instead of one. Yeah. And, and this brings us to, to actually um, to talk about some of the practices that you advocate. And I know that one or two, two of the spiritual uh, practices that you talk about are the 
two types of meditation, the breath and the mantra. Uh, so I'd love for you to outline a yeah. little bit for us yeah. what those two types of practices are that you really outline very, very thoroughly in your book. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's always been very important to me to uh, correct the, the misconception uh, perpetrated often by, you know, facile articles about meditation and, you know, so forth, um, that they're all the same. The truth is there's many, many forms of meditation practice, and we shouldn't expect that they would all have the same uh, results if they're practiced differently. It just defies logic. And so I describe all that, and actually the situation has gotten worse in recent years because there's been so much great research on the benefits of meditation and the advent of mindfulness practice. And people often conflate the two, mindfulness practices and meditation, and there's a certain amount of overlap, and then there's not overlap, and they're dis different in what some ways, uh, similar in other ways. So I distinguish in the book, to, for simplicity's sake, between practices that engage the mind in some kind of uh, focus or concentration, and of course there are degrees of that, uh, and practices uh, that require no mind control or effort or concentration, but are more of a letting go kind of uh, practice. And so I have instructions for uh, the typical, the classic mindfulness practice of observing the breath and um, with a soft focus as opposed to an intense concentration. And then I have a, a, an effortless practice based on the use of mantra because mantras can be used in a, <laughs> in a concentrated way or in a letting go kind of effortless way. And I favor the latter, especially when people are going to practice on their own without a teacher present. So You know, for, for me, I use a combination. I usually start my meditation with a mantra, and it kind of calms me down, gives me focus. It's something I'm used to. It's like, oh, okay, the body says, okay, she's going to her altar now. Okay, I understand that. And then after I feel really relaxed and and immersed in that, then I can kind of release the mantra and just kind of go into that soft focus as you're talking about. Yes, and, and, and that is, uh, you know, a perfect adaptation, a perfect example of how people are able to adapt the variety of practices that are available to them through their own experiences uh, to individualize a routine, you know, a, what in uh, Sanskrit is called a sadhana, a, a regular practice. And, you know, somebody else might begin with breathing practices and then segue to mantra uh, and, you know, and then follow it perhaps with, uh, you know, chanting or prayer or anything else. So I have, you know, guidelines in the book for, you know, having a core meditation practice that suits you and um, supplementing it with other practices before and after and so forth. 
You also talk about how um, your practice can become stale. How would we know <laughs> that it's stale? How you do know, we, uh, yeah. There's, I think on my orientation, especially to people who are independent-minded, is to have an exploratory uh, and experimental attitude toward the practices we engage in. But to do that intelligently and responsibly, you know, there's something, I'm sure you, uh, over time you interviewed Houston Smith on New Dimensions. Yes, many times. Yes. And so Houston, who I'm honored to say wrote the introduction to my book, American Veda, he used to he was critical of what he called cafeteria religion, you know, the, and he would say that if you treat spiritual practices the way you treat a buffet, you, you would be drawn to the things that may taste good, but you may not get properly nourished. And so, you know, he would advocate <laughs> the equivalent of good nutrition, which means to go to practices that work for you, but to give them time to see if they work. If something seems promising, don't just try it once. Do it for a while and take it deep. Because if the other metaphor, of course, is, you know, uh, Ramakrishna used to say, you can dig many holes, but if you don't go deep enough in any one of them, you won't get to the water that you're seeking. So to do it, uh, well, and perform proper sort of experiments by saying, let's see if this works. And to see if it works, you do it a while, you do it over time, and you do them the way they're instructed. And, and then if, if they seem like something is missing, you, you know, add to it, you try something else. And over time, you know, you end up if you're exploratory with a, a good repertoire that you can draw from as the needs of your body, your mind, your circumstances change. But in my experience, the people who uh, thrive the most in this uh, sort of a, uh, opportunities we now have to, to draw on, you know, vast uh, variety of practices are the people who find what works and stick to it and then supplement it with other things. And then over time, things change. What is the criteria by which you, we can, can ask ourselves whether our practice is actually working or not? You know, in my experience, the practices that work best or the, the, the uh, guidance, the guidelines that work best is to judge the practice in part by how you feel during it, but more important, how you feel when it's done. Because a, a, like a, a deep meditation practice will vary from uh, practice one session to another. And uh, sometimes it'll feel turbulent, uh, but afterward you may feel great because something was cleansed during the process that made you feel restless or turbulent. Other times it'll be deeply relaxing. Other times you'll fall asleep. Other times you'll have illumination kind of experiences. So they vary. The main thing is how do you feel afterward? When you go back into your world, are you clearer? Are you calmer? 
Do you react better to circumstances? Do you make wiser decisions? Does this persist over time? And very often what I've found is people just feel better, but it doesn't necessarily register on them until someone says, hey, you're different. What have you been doing? So it, it's, you know, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> or, you know, as it says in the New Testament, by their works you shall know them. You know, the, the fruits of the, of the practice show up in your life. So I, I'd like to talk uh, a bit about those after effects of our meditation or our, our spiritual practice in just mm -hmm. one moment. I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Philip Goldberg, and he's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Philip Goldberg, and he's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. And we're, we're talking, I'm talking about the aftermath of um, one spiritual practice, and, and that you also say, hey, it, it's important not to just jump up right after a, a, a mm. practice, but to take some time to re-enter our daily life. Can you speak about that? Yeah, it's how I was trained early on in meditation and as a teacher. Um, if you go deep inside, um, you may not even realize just how quiet the mind has become and perhaps even more important, how relaxed the body has come. Uh, but we know from scientific studies, the, the metabolism can drop precipitously which is a good thing during a, a deep practice, but especially if you do it for a while, 15 minutes, a half hour, or whatever, coming up too quickly. Like, I, you know, I've been in group situations where, you know, they come out of meditation, they bang a bell, and, you're, and they start talking. And I'm, like, totally disoriented for a while. But, you know, it, you can, it can jangle the nervous system to, to make a transition too quickly. And so, you know, the practice would be, or the advice would be, to come out slowly. Don't open your eyes immediately. Transition out. And if uh, appropriate, you know, there are sort of intermediate practices that are also beneficial that you can do immediately following a deep meditation to transition before you get up and move about and engage your senses, such as prayer or chanting, uh, because they're a little bit more active than the deep meditation, but not quite as active as you're now going to be when you open your eyes. And this is you know it's a, it's a self-preservation method <laughs> to you know give yourself, a few minutes before you jump out. 
There are residual effects if we practice regularly. Let's say, um, I, I think that you talk about this in, in your book about how there are bumps in the road, in, even in your own practice, when you might lose it. Let's say for some something comes up and you, you find yourself in anger or anxiety or worry or whatever it is, you're there. But that the residual effects are that you return more quickly to that yeah. um, equanimity. Is it, am I interpreting yes. that correctly? Yes, and it's it, it's it's a very important point. And um, you know, all these years, because of my writing and my work, I've I've spoken to so many practitioners, and my own observation, I was very pleased to see. Uh, is verified in some of the scientific research on meditation and mindfulness practices that there's a cumulative effect. So if you meditate, if you do these things regularly, um, it it gets infused. The, the inner calm, the peace, the openness of consciousness, they come into your life. And then they sort of fade away and you practice again and the more of it comes into your life. And you see gradual, gradual changes in your life in, in the direction of the spiritual qualities we, we value, inner calm, uh, more capacity for love and compassion, clarity of mind, all these things. But it doesn't always stick to us <laughs> to the extent we wanted to or expected to. And, and so, you know, I remember being at a party where somebody had just come from a, a, a one-month uh, ret- silent retreat and, you know, was saying how he's just totally transformed and nothing will ever be the same. And somebody leaned in and said, let's see what happens when he gets home. Let's see if he passes the spouse test. You know, because, you know, stuff is going to happen. There's a a passage in the Bhagavad Gita that appealed to me from the earliest days of my reading, and it promises equanimity in gain and loss, victory and defeat, pleasure and pain. I said, that's what I want. I'm tired of the getting tossed around by the changes of life. I want inner peace and equanimity all time. And you start to see some of that happened, but it's not, you know, we're human and we have a long way to go. And so you erupt in anger, you get disappointed, you, something happens, you, you, you're heartbroken, you're, you're in grief, whatever it is. And you say, oh God, I must be doing something wrong. I'm not as spiritual, but that's, that's what happens. But what also happens is over time, you notice you rebound more quickly. And that's, well, that's critical. Exactly. That's critical. And and um, in your book, there's this wonderful chapter. Um, you, it's entitled, When the Blitz Hits the <laughs> Fan. And I, I love this chapter. And this is really about some immediate interventions that uh, no matter how faithful we are to our regular spiritual practices, um, we can get attacked, as you say, by life. And yeah. um, so 
here we are, we're in quarantine and we're sheltering in place and this is giving us uh, other challenges in our lives. And so what are some of these immediate, if you can recall some of them, uh, uh, that we can do immediate interventions? Yes. Now, let me preface that by saying one of the core assumptions of the book is that we have within us our natural state, our innermost being, our innermost core, is of peace and infinite awareness and uh, pure love. Phil, if I can uh, interrupt you for a moment, I think you you call this, um, you say, we as humans are bliss-seeking missiles. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we are bliss-seeking missiles, and we're conditioned to look outward for happiness, and all the spiritual teachings say, no, 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 You're turn it around 180 degrees, turn within, because your innermost nature already is at peace. It already is what you're seeking. And that's where all the methods come in. They change the conditioning. So you, you turn within and remove the obstacles to what I call in the book, the sanctuary of peace within us and the fortress of strength within us. So that's what all the spiritual methods are about. That's what all, you know, my, what I advocate the developing an inventory of practices to call upon. And it's also what these in, immediate interventions do. They bring us, you know, there's many, many ways to just sort of stop the flood of craziness and come back to the inner peace. Even if you you only have a few seconds. And, and one of them, for example, I'm, I'm looking at my hand right now on the desk next to my computer. If you, you're upset, you're in turbulence, if you remember to just shift your attention to the immediate sensations and touch is the, the, the best way to do it. You could also be, you know, uh, just turn to your breath. It could also be uh, visual or, auditory, but touch. And if you touch something, hold it, move it, pay attention to that touch, the, the mental craziness subsides. Similarly, if you have the opportunity to just stop and just close your eyes and turn within and feel what's going on physically, you know, there's anger, turbulence, craziness, the, the, the pure physical sensation of it if you allow it to, if you pay attention, just attend to it innocently, it will subside. And there's research on this, neurobiological research that shows that this loop, the physiological loop, lasts about 90 seconds. There's something, you quote uh, Jill Bolt-Taylor, yeah. who was a stroke victim and who who was able to to come back and write about how the pieces came back together in her brain. And uh, she gives the advice, and I think you concur with this, um, when a storm comes, uh, it's best to be still and wait. Yes, and she's the one from whom I got this 90-second loop concept. She's a neuroscientist. So if you just witness it, just let it subside. I mean, it, you know, it's 
old wives tale kind of folk advice, just let it pass, give it a moment, uh, take a deep breath, breathing, you know, especially if you, you know, there's ways to take that deep breath that will facilitate returning to some inner peace, you know, how, how to exhale, how to inhale, that are all in the book. Isn't it true that, um, like, the brain can't hold a, a particular thought or, or even emotion for, for very long? So that's why that 90 seconds, because what, whatever we're feeling, the turmoil we're feeling inside, it probably isn't, we think it's going to last a long time, but that's it's right. actually pretty short. And if it's really crazy... That ninety seconds can feel like ninety minutes, and but it 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 dissipates. It doesn't mean you know the situation is automatically going to change. It doesn't mean it's going not going to come back. But it gives you that time frame to settle down and think more clearly. So your response to it will be more effective less likely to make things worse. There's another thing that you talk about. You talk about, like, let's suppose it's not dissipating and we're really agitated about something that's happening, let's say politically or something in our family or whatever it is. You talk about holy rage, and and this is where you can scream where no one can hear you, or you write a letter, you put it down on paper, and it's a letter that never gets sent. Yeah. And this, these are, you know, not just good spiritual methods. A good psychotherapist will tell you, you know, the same thing. You know, these are tried and true. Sometimes the upset, the upheaval is so intense and, and the duration, you know, it just doesn't go away when circumstances are such uh, that you need to let it out. You need to pound a pillow. You need to roar and scream. And that outlet is terribly important. It, it just, it expels the, the energy, the toxic energy. So you can, you can then take action and respond to whatever's going on with some more clarity, with some more presence, some more calm. Because we all know what happens when you react in the moment from the rage and the craziness. That's when you say things you wish you didn't. You, it's, that's when you lash out in ways you wish later regret. It's when you make stupid decisions that make things worse. So these coming back to calm. And, and so regular spiritual practice makes that easier to do in those moments. I'm here with Philip Goldberg, and he's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Philip Goldberg, and we're talking about spiritual practice for crazy times, which is the name of his book. Phil, I'd like to talk about two particular practices that you mention in the book, and I think that they're such important practices. Uh, one is called the meta practice, which is may I be free from suffering and all beings be free from suffering. And the other is Tonglen, which mm -hmm. is a uh, kind of a counterintuitive practice. So I'd love for you to talk about both of those practices. Yeah, they're both traditional Buddhist practices. And, um, but of course, it's important to note that these practices that derive from uh, traditions like Buddhism and uh, the Hindu uh, aspect of yoga are universal practices. They're not, you know, what they wouldn't conflict with anybody's re religion or belief system. And they're both about cultivating the capacity for compassion. Um, and part of what I consider a spiritual approach to, to healing the world. They're both mental practices, but they will augment anything we do in the world by cultivating you know, the, the uh, capacity of the heart for empathy and compassion. And, you know, we, we, there's no time to go into the instructions for them, but they can be found in, in, in the last chapter of my book. They can even be found online. There's so many teachers who teach versions of them. Metta practice is done sort of sitting quietly in, med in meditation. Um, and it's something I know that people will often do in conjunction with a different meditation practice, maybe on uh, after a deep meditation, then doing metta. But it's a sequence where that begins with a, a series of statements. May I be free from suffering? May I be healthy and strong? May I be peaceful and at ease? May I be happy? And there's many variations in English. Um, and then it extends to outward. So, you know, a Westerner might think of these as prayers or, you know, affirmation or whatever, but they're inner statements and you feel these deeply. And then it extends out to someone you care about. And then it's done again with somebody you hardly know, just an acquaintance. And then it goes out in, in increasing circles of care and compassion and concern to uh, somebody who gives you trouble. You, you want to feel those good intentions, those, that compassion for uh, someone who annoys you. You know, reminds me of Ramdas having pictures of political leaders he hates on his altar to cultivate the habit of loving even them. And, uh, you know, these days <laughs> it might be a good idea. And, and then it culminates in uh, wishing the same uh, for all beings. And Tonglen is something that's done in the moment when, you know, you, you, do it, you could do it silently. Um, it might be, be, you know, to somebody you're in the room with, somebody you see in the street, somebody you know is suffering somewhere in the world. And it's a way of mentally bringing in to you that person's suffering and that person's pain and then extending out toward that person healing and love and kindness. Um, 
it, it's what you, you know might be called a visualization practice. So those two are very powerful. So in in the Tonglen, why I mentioned that it was counterintuitive because you're visualizing someone who is in pain or agitated or whatever it is that's going on with them, and they're in this cloud of um, noxic stuff, yeah. and and you're actually breathing that in. Now, that's yeah. why I call it counterintuitive, because yeah. we don't want to bring in all this negativity inside of us, but because but then you we're- convert it. It's it's transformed within the heart and turned that's into right. to light, and so that's why we need to have, I believe, uh, a, a firm foundation of spiritual practice so that we can take that in and we can transform it into another. Absolutely, I agree. Well, of course, I agree because that's why I wrote my book. But <laughs> you know, we all. I have known too many people over time. And I was one of them, you know, back in the 60s and all my radical comrades, you know, we were busy trying to change the world. But internally, you know, we were a mess. And, and I mean, not, not every activist is like that. You know, there's saints out there doing wonderful work. But very often, either, you know, we haven't done enough inner work uh, to, to protect ourselves in the midst of being active in, socially or, you know, helping others, whether we're, you know, doctors and nurses or we're, you know, marching in the streets for social justice. If we want to bring the best of ourselves to that, as, and if we ignore our inner life, our inner dimension, then we, weren't, we won't be bringing the best of ourselves to, to, to our work and our uh, mission in life. Um, and so that's one half of the equation. And the other half of the equation is all the people working on themselves and engaged in self-improvement and spiritual development. Well, we have to act in the world in some capacity. We have to, you know, have jobs. We have to, as the Zen masters say, we have to chop wood and carry water. We're members of families. We're members of neighborhoods and communities. And especially in this time we're in at this moment, of a pandemic, if we don't learn from this how interconnected we are, then we <laughs> will never learn. You know, right now, down the street, there may be people who need help or someone who's lonely. It is incumbent upon us right now. It's not a luxury, but it's incumbent upon us to bring the qualities we're developing in ourselves out into the world as our contribution whether it's minor or small, whether it's a phone call to somebody to make them feel better, or you're out in the streets marching, or you're running for office, or you know whatever it is, the world needs deeply spiritual people who you know tend to be more loving, more compassionate, more wise. Don't don't uh, keep those to yourself. Don't hide your gifts under a bushel or whatever the saying is. Maybe we could end this conversation with some thoughts on flipping the mind, which is uh, mm. one of the subjects that you talk about, about yeah. how we can reframe. And and you state that thoughts are vibrating energy forms. So our thoughts actually emanate out of us. Uh, and 
And so what can you say about reframing and flipping the mind? Yeah, um, this is, of course, eternally known by all the spiritual traditions, and it's something psychology knows, you know, from scientific uh, experimentation. And, And we know from our own experience, if we're caught up in negative emotions, negative thoughts, whether it's uh, anger or worry or fear. And it might be habitual. It might be habitual. That's exactly right. We all are conditioned in some way. You know, maybe your parents were like that, so you picked up the habit. Um, Whether, you know, we complain, we see the negative, especially more toxic emotions like worry and fear. Um, It's to our benefit and the benefit of those with whom we interact, if we can flip those to more positive emotions, there'd be less toxicity in the body, in the brain, and less toxicity in how we act when we react to other people. And if you want to think more esoterically, just the the vibratory quality of those thoughts is different, just like different notes on a piano will radiate differently out into the world. And if you, you, know, you hit a dissonant chord, that's going to be jarring. If you hit a harmonious chord, it's going to be soothing. So it's our responsibility to ourselves and others to when we're caught in negativity emo- emotion to see if we can flip it. And you know that's a, a long-established yogic routine. It's in the yoga sutras. It's, you know, and psychologists will tell you they call it reframing. It's part of cognitive therapy. That said, um, there's nuances to it that, of course, we don't have time to go into here. But one of the nuances that's really fascinating is the research shows that for it, uh, that kind of reframing of, of, of the content of the mind to work, the the new thought, so to speak, has to be believable. Mm. So if you're standing in front of the television hating, you know, the politician on screen and you're angry and all that, you can't just say, oh, I love that person. It's not going to work. Your subconscious mind is going to say, bull, you know, I'm not buying it. But you can flip to say, for example, compassion. If not for that person, then for the people that person affects. Ah, there, that's a beautiful. Something like that. But there's always a way to flip it. So if you're you're, um, worried, you may have a legitimate worry about something. But you can flip it to something like concern that leads to constructive action. I want to thank you so much, Phil, for being with us today on New Dimensions. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Philip Goldberg. He's the author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools for Cultivating Calm, Clarity, and Courage. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website and his blogs to Philip Goldberg, and he spells Philip with one L, philipgoldberg.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3708. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.